you look at your bulletin outline, we're dealing with the subject of Jesus and my salvation. There are two extremes in thinking when we come to ask that question, how can I be saved and how do I know? There is the extreme, firstly, of self-save. There are many people who swing the pendulum in their thinking from I must be all that I can be to please God and thus be saved to the other extreme, I cannot do anything. To influence God, so why try? May I say that the truth does not lie in either of these extremes. The gospel does not tell any of us to be good or to do good things in order to be saved. That is because there isn't enough good in you or in me to atone for our sins. There's not enough goodness in the world to make such an atonement. Jesus said it best when he said to the rich uh, lawyer that we read in our meditation text, There is none good but gone. Luke 18 verse 19. So this is the first wrong extreme thinking that salvation is a reward for being good. That's the whole idea of the world's thinking with regard to salvation. And somehow, most people think that it's based upon some kind of a scale. That if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you will get the reward of heaven. That's how people go to heaven. And by the way, very few people think that the scale system that for them, they don't think that their bad deeds outweigh the good. So they all think, or most think, they're going to go to heaven because of the reward system. I have in my ministry met a number of people that said, yeah, I'm going to hell. They come right out and say it. But there again, their concept of hell is bogus. They say things like, well, that's where all my friends are. And we are going to party, you know. That's their concept of hell. Immorality, drinking, drugs. That's where I'm going, and that's where I want to be. Well, that may be where they're going, but I assure you that one millisecond after they're there, it is not a place where they will want to be. So that's the first extreme, that salvation is based upon a reward system, reward for being or doing good. The second wrong extreme is this. I am beyond being saved. And here the thought is something like this. I'm so rotten a sinner, so corrupt in my thinking and actions that it doesn't matter how I act or what I do, I'm doomed. God will do what God will do. And so I'll just have to leave it to that. Well, may I say this is not the gospel either. This is fatalism. It takes 
the legitimate doctrine of predestination to a logical but unbiblical conclusion. And may I say that human logic is not the way to find God. It's not the way to figure God out. Faith is the way to find God. And faith, even when the Bible seems to teach to seemingly, I'm going to use that word, seemingly contradictory truths right alongside of each other. And that's the second point in your outline, that the gospel maintains a tension. A tension. On the one hand, we learn that we are utterly helpless in and of ourselves to influence God to love us and to save us. Salvation is solely His call. In His own words, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore, I'm still reading scripture, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Romans 9, verse 14 through 16. He will say, see, see, that's just what I mean. God's going to save whom he will, and there isn't a thing in the world that I can do, so what's the use? Let me say to you here in this Paul does not say, what's the use? He doesn't say that at all. You are extrapolating that from the text using logic. Paul said that God's salvation does not depend on man's desire and effort. And that's a far cry from saying that man has no responsibility, notice my word, responsibility to respond aright to the message of the gospel when he hears it preached. The other extremists go off the deep. At this end of the spectrum, they discount God's electing grace while giving a cursory agreement to it. And they lay their great emphasis on doing everything in their power to posture themselves in some way as to influence God. They will pray more. They will attend church more regularly. They will listen to preaching. They will read books. They will give money to the church. They will help on projects. All with the idea that God will somehow be impressed with their fervor and choose to include them among his sheep. They explain salvation as entering an archway into heaven which reads on the entrance side, Whosoever will may come. Emphasis will. Will. Whosoever makes the choice may come. And after entering through the arch, they look back and the sign reads on heaven's side, chosen before the foundation of the world. Yet this too is not the gospel because it lays so much emphasis on doing 
on making right choices. That the end product is a salvation which becomes a reward for smart people that had the common good sense to make good choices. Choices to jump through the right hoops to influence God to choose them. It never dawns on them that such would be a salvation based on their own good choices and not upon God's grace alone. Let me say it this way. Even good work nullifies grace. Even good work nullifies grace. Jesus did not die to make men good manipulators of God, but to make sinners saints who become like God in their thinking and behavior. And as we ask the question, what about Jesus and my salvation? We must keep all of these things in mind. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. There's no such thing as influencing God and his decision. His choice is his choice. And his choice is not influenced by partiality as though men have any credible morality or righteousness which would impress God. Sinners, there's the other side of the coin, are, however, responsible to respond aright to the gospel through repentance and faith. Now, in keeping all this in mind, we should note that God does not categorize sin into greater and lesser. Greater, lesser. Greater, lesser. That's that's why people think of the balance system that I spoke of earlier. My good works, I hope, will outweigh the bad ones over here. Greater, lesser. God doesn't think of sin that way. He is not shocked nor turned off by wicked sinners as though some people are beyond his mercy or out of reach of his grace. We tend to catalog and categorize sin into major minor, but God simply says, the soul that sins shall die. Ezekiel 18 verse 14. While we think of sinning as immorality and rape and murder, child molestation, and so on, those barred from entrance into God's paradise, as spoken of in the Revelation, standing on the outside looking in, standing out with the immoral in that list that we just read, are what? Such that, and I'm reading scripture now, practice magic art, so they're into the occult world, idolaters, worshipers of false gods, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood or lies. Revelation 22, verse 15. Revelation 21, 18 adds, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile. And Romans 3, 28 adds, those that are full of greed, envy, deceit, malice, Gossips, slanderers, arrogant, boastful, those who disobey their parents. 
Wow, talk about painting with a broad brush. It's overwhelming. Now, so while we compare sins to exonerate ourselves, God simply says, the wages of sin is death. Without any specific mention of quantity of sin or type of sin, it's whoever sins. So this means that sinning more does not make us more a sinner than anyone else. And sinning less, if we're back on that scale, does not make us less a sinner. In need of God's grace. James puts it this way. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. James 2. Verse 10. Now his point is that no matter the law given, it comes from one and the same lawgiver who is God. So you cannot exonerate yourself by saying, I'm not an adulterer. Well, what about the other laws of God? Are you a liar? That's part of the Ten Commandments too. Have you ever been covetous of another man's possessions? That's number 10 of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever structured God in your thinking as you want him to be and not as he reveals himself to be? Say, so, well, yeah, what's wrong with that? Then you're an idolater and that's part of the Ten Commandments too. That we're not to have an idle concept of God. You see, one infraction is enough to condemn you as a law breaker. Think of a man on trial for assault. It would be ludicrous for such a defendant to offer as his defense, but I'm a good provider for my family. I'm faithful to my wife. I do not steal from my employer. I covet no man's silver or gold. I'm content with the things that I have. Is this a defense for the prosecutor's assertion that this man assaulted another person with a crowbar and nearly killed him in the shop parking lot? What do these other good things, commendable as they might be, have to do with exonerating him from an assault charge? And to personalize it, what do your many good deeds have to do with exonerating you from those times when you have grossly violated the law of God in so many other areas? If you stumble at just one point, you're guilty. And I'm guilty as well. And in fact, we are all guilty. And that's the problem. 
How do we get rid of the guilt without getting killed? God has a controversy with sinners, and we are all sinners. Now that brings us to the second point in our outline, Jesus and his persecutor. The case of Saul. Those of you who knew Paul's history will know that he was not always the great apostle Paul. His own confession is given in our text, verse 13 and following. These are his words. This is his confession. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor, that is of God's people, and a violent man. We hardly, we can hardly think that these words are coming from the Apostle Paul. We don't think of his history being this black. I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. Just what the nature of his violence and persecution of others entailed, he explained to King Agrippa at his trial. Here's what he says to the king. I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Acts 26, verse 9 through 11. Now you got to believe the man. This is his testimony. He calls it an obsession, and that's a good word for it. I'm going to get these Christians and I'm going to deal with them. And I'm even leaving Jerusalem and I'm going up to Damascus, which is in Syria. And I, I've heard there's some Christian people up there and I'll get them and bring them back to Jerusalem and we'll show them how to deal with this. And it was on that witch hunt for Christians to Damascus, that Christ the Lord stopped Saul dead in his tracks with a blinding light and a vision and challenged Saul for his crimes against him. As he neared Damascus on his journey and reading scripture, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Acts 9, verse 3 through 5. 
Now, I understand who this guy is. He's killing Christians. He's arresting Christians, followers of Christ, Christians. And we might think that God would strike Saul dead for his murderous conduct against his innocent people. But instead, instead, he sent a prophet to restore Saul's sight. He was blinded on this occasion. And to give him a commission. And again, his testimony before King Agrippa, he gives his commission. Here it is. Christ through the prophet. I appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I am sending you to open eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a peace among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Acts 26, verse 16 and following. Our text, verse 12, says that Christ appointed Paul to his service. He also says, verse 13, I was shown mercy, even though Paul's actions hurt the church of Christ through his persecution and violence. He tells us that the grace of the Lord was poured out upon him along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, verse 14. He neither had faith nor love for Jesus up to this point in his life. Now you see what's going on here. Paul is not taking credit for the way he turned out. He is saying that he had nothing to do with it. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. A description that he reiterates in verse 16. And this is not false humility. Paul was the worst sinner. He killed Christians for sport. He opposed Christ at every turn. He tried to destroy the church of God. Read about it in Acts 8. And he liked his job. He delighted in doing this thinking he was doing God a great service to rid the world of Christians, not knowing, that's his ignorance, verse 13, not believing, also mentioned verse 13, that the Christ, the promised Messiah, was in fact this Jesus of Nazareth, God's son. This is this guy that the Lord saved. So if you're thinking here today, there's no hope for me. God wouldn't want me and his family. If God only knew the things I've done. Well, let me suggest to you, God knows all the things you've done. And all the things you've said, and beyond that, all the things you've thought, Perhaps didn't act on, but you thought them. So why would Paul, or why would God save this Saul who became Paul? His name was changed to Paul. Well, Paul becomes God's 
living object lesson. And we have this in our text. Why would God choose to save a man whose existence involve the imprisonment, the persecution, and the killing of the people of God. You murderer, you're killing my people. Verse 16 and following of our text. Paul writes, For that very reason I was shown mercy. Let me read it again. For that very reason, I was shown mercy. Well, what what could possibly be in God's thinking? He goes on. So that in me, in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Simply put, he is saying, God saved me to show the rest of the world of sinners that if God is willing, if God is able to save the worst of sinners, he's willing and able to save you. If God could be merciful to Paul, and he was, He can be merciful to you and to me and to whomever. Like Paul, your ignorance, your unbelief is no barrier to the grace of God. God can and does give faith. He does give love for God in the grace that he pours out upon us in Jesus. Verse 14. God takes the God-haters the blasphemers, those violently opposed to him, and he appoints them into his service. Verse 12. You know, these make the best ambassadors because they know how much they owe. It's not surprising that God would pick on sinners that know they're sinners and do a wonderful work of grace in their life. You see what happened to the Apostle Paul is not unique. In fact, every Christian in this room has come to faith in Christ the same way. True, the circumstances are not identical. We're not out all on a road somewhere heading for a place to kill Christians and prosecute them unto death. But we oppose God in unbelief. We have done that. And we have been ignorant of God and it's our fault. We thought we were okay with God and that we knew God and how to become a child of God, but we didn't know anything. Peter said to those in Jerusalem that they had their hand in the crucifixion of Jesus. Notice how he words it. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Now I know that you did this in ignorance, as did your leaders. Acts 3, 
verse 13 and following. But you see, they did all these things. Does ignorance exonerate us? Does it let us off the hook? No, a thousand times no. Peter goes on to say to the same group, Repent! Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Acts 3, verse 19. I know you did this in ignorance, but you know, you still did it. And you need to repent. When you're stopped for going 60 miles per hour in a work zone and a road crew worker is hit by your car, try defending yourself by saying, Oh, I didn't know the speed limit was 45. The judge will say, Sorry, ignorance is no defense. Guilty, $7,500 fine, 15 years in jail. What will the judge of the universe say to you who have sinned against his son, Jesus, through ignorance and unbelief? I didn't know Jesus was your son. I wasn't convinced of his identity. And so I didn't believe in him. Here's God's answer, John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. It was never removed, it's still there. What I want you to see is that this is all of us until God's grace finds us and changes us. This was Paul, the Christian killer. And this is us, the Christ killer. You see, it wasn't just the Jews who killed Christ. It was our sins that put him on that cross. A number of years ago, Mel Gibson did a film which gave a pretty hard portrayal of the brutality of crucifixion. But it did a uh, poor job of demonstrating that it was our sin that made the cross necessary. As we watched the scenes in that movie of the torture of Jesus, many wept. Others were silent. It was emotionally draining. We were stunned, traumatized by what we saw, appalled at the brutality, shocked that men could treat another human being in that way. And it was just dealing with the physical torture, which was not even half the anguish that Christ went through as he bore the sins of his people. We empathized with Jesus and we wept for him. But you know what? God isn't asking for your sympathy. He's demanding your repentance. In the real world, when Jesus was bearing his cross on the Via Dolorosa, the pathway of suffering as it's called, 
Gibson's film did not include, did not include the conversation Jesus had with the spectators. Did you know that he had a conversation? He's carrying his cross towards Calvary's hill and he's having a conversation with the onlookers who's standing along the road. Let me read it for you. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. You get the scene here. He's been flogged, he's beat, he's bloody, he's weak. He's stumbling under the weight of a cross. And these women are alongside the road and they're weeping and wailing for him. They're empathizing. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed is the barren woman, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Luke 23, verse 28 through 31. These are very strange words. What can Jesus possibly mean? Well, clearly our Lord is saying, it isn't me who needs your pity, your tears, your sobs, your cries. It is you who are in mortal danger along with your children. The time will come when death will be preferred over living, when you will call on the mountains and hills to fall on you. When and why, we ask. Revelation answers. Don writes, I wash as he, the Lamb, opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell on the earth. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the next verse says, Every king, leader, rich, poor, free man, slave, everyone hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains. They called to the rocks. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. That's God the Father. And from the wrath of the Lamb, that's Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Revelation 6, verse 12 and following. Now that's a different Jesus than most people think about. A lamb that has wrath? You see, Jesus' point to these women is this. You will wish to God that you were not mothers on that day. You'll consider the barren womb to be the blessed ones, not you. 
Spurgeon comments, writing this. If when fires are raging in the forest, the green trees, full of sap and moisture, crackle like stubble in the flame, how will the old dry trees burn, which are already rotten to the core and turned to torchwood, and so prepared as fuel for the furnace? If Jesus suffers, who hath no sin, but is full of the life of innocence and the sap of holiness, how will they suffer who have been long time dead in sin and are rotten with iniquity? Could Spurgeon write or what? Could he preach or what? The word pictures are just absolutely astonishing. Peter writes a similar thought when he says this, this is Holy Scripture. This is not somebody's sermon. Peter writes, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Brethren, it is not Jesus who needs our tears for his sufferings. It is us who need to weep for ourselves if we are far from God. Oh, that today you would cease from your doubts and your fears and your wandering and, yes, your tears. Christ calls upon you to weep, not for him, but to repent and be saved from the wrath that is coming. And Paul's conversion demonstrates that you will never find a more loving Savior willing to save and powerful enough to save than in Jesus Christ. His cross is designed to wipe away all tears by taking your sorrow upon himself. His tears weeping over Jerusalem was for their sins. But God has a people that he intends to cleanse in the blood of Christ. And his plan will not be frustrated. You see, when you and I weep, it is not always in repentance. Sometimes we weep in remorse for the consequences that sin brings into our lives. Those were Esau's crocodile tears. When he was rejected in the birthright. These are tears of pity. They are tears of self-pity. And no such tears touch the heart of God. But when we weep in true repentance of our sin. God has touched us with the reality of our need for his son as our savior. And Jesus he gladly gives to all who believe. This is the glorious promise of the gospel. And it is the promise held out from Jesus to you. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. John 6, 
verse 32. You may be rejecting Jesus, but he will never reject you. May this be the day that you come in repentance and faith. May God grant you that repentance and faith, that love for Christ that's not there as yet in your heart. Now the second question that was asked on my paper, how may we know that we're forgiven and saved, I'm going to deal with in another message. But I will at least tell you where to go to find the answer, and that is to the book of the Bible known as 1 John. There's the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Keep working your way back through the New Testament. And just before the book of Revelation, also written by John, we have three little letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, that John also wrote. And 1 John was written so that we might know if we're one of God's people or not. Let me read it to you from his own words. I write these things, writes John, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, verse 13. We'll explore that in more depth later. Our Father, we pray for those here today that are struggling with the question, how can I be saved and how can I know it? And I pray that you will grant us your grace in these two dimensions, these two extremes that people go in. The idea that they can work their way to heaven by doing good and therefore heaven would be a reward. And then those who think they're, they're so wicked and so bad that God would never want them would not have anything to do with them. I pray that they'll hear Christ in the gospel. That he's calling sinners, whoever they are, to come to him. And that he will grant the repentance they don't have and the faith that they don't have and the love they, do, they don't have. Even now, you may be pricking their hearts, bringing about conviction, though conviction is not conversion. Granting them an entrance into your presence that they might cry out to you for mercy with the promise that all that come to you, you will never drive away. How we praise you for that. I thank you you're not like men. We as people will you know, we'll receive person until they hurt us, until they do something to offend us, and then we won't have anything to do with them. But Jesus knows all about our sins before we come. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds are like, you know, an open book to him. He knows them all. In fact, our deeds are written in the book. But the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all of those deeds, wash them all away, erase them out of your book. Because in Christ, they're paid for in his blood. Help us to see that and to believe that and to come to you. You are the only Savior the world is going to get. If we don't come to you, there is no salvation. Bless these truths to our heart. Thank you for the example of Paul. 
We save the worst. You can save us. Amen.